Chapter Six, Part One of A Chronicle of Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Chronicle of Wolf by William Wood. Chapter Six, Quebec, seventeen fifty nine. In October seventeen fifty eight, Wolf sailed from Halifax for England with Boscawen, and very nearly saw a naval battle off Land's End with the French fleet returning to France from Quebec. The enemy, however, slipped away in the dark. On November the 1st he landed at Portsmouth. He had been made full colonel of a new regiment, the 67th Foot, Hampshire's, and before going home to London he set off to see it at Salisbury. Footnote. Ten years later a Russian general saw this regiment at Menorca, and was loud in his praise of its all-round excellence, when Wolfe's successor in the colonelcy, Sir James Campbell, at once said, The only merit due to me is the strictness with which I have followed the system introduced by the hero of Quebec. End footnote. Wolfe's old regiment, the 20th Lancashire Fusiliers, was now in Germany fighting under the command of Prince Ferdinand of Brunswick, and was soon to win more laurels at Minden the first of the three great British victories of 1759, Minden, Quebec, and Quiberon. Though far from well, Wolfe was as keen as ever about anything that could possibly make him fit for command. He picked out the best officers with a sure eye, generals and colonels like Carleton, captains like Delon, a man made for the campaigns in Canada, who, as we shall see later, led the forlorn hope up the heights of Abraham. Wolfe had also noted, in a third member of the great Howe family, a born leader of light infantry for Quebec. Wolfe was very strong on light infantry, and trained them to make sudden dashes with a very short but surprise attack followed by a quick retreat under cover. One day at Louisbourg an officer said this reminded him of what Xenophon wrote about the Carduchians who harassed the rear of the world-famous Ten Thousand. I had it from Xenophon, was Wolfe's reply. Like all great commanders, Wolfe knew what other great commanders had done and thought. No matter to what age or nation they belonged, Greek, Roman, German, French, British, or any other. Years before this, he had recommended a young officer to study the Prussian army regulations and Vauban's book on sieges nor did he forget to read the lives of men like Skanderberg and Ziska, who could teach him many unusual lessons. He kept his eyes open everywhere, all his life long, on men and things and books. He recommended his friend, Captain Rickson, who was then in Halifax, to read Montesquieu's not-yet-famous book, The Spirit of Laws, because it would be useful for a government official in a new country. Writing home to his mother from Louisbourg about this new country, that is, before Canada had become British, before there was much more than a single million of English-speaking people in the whole new world, and before most people on either side of the Atlantic understood what a great overseas empire meant at all, he said, this will sometime hence be a vast empire, the seat of power and learning. Nature had refused them nothing and there will grow a people out of our little spot, England, that will fill this vast space, and divide this great portion of the globe with the Spaniards, who are possessed of the other half of it. 
On arriving in England, Wolfe had reported his presence to the commander-in-chief, Lord Ligonier, requesting leave of absence in order that he might visit his relatives. This was granted, and the Wolfe family met together once more and for the last time. Though he said little about it, Wolfe must have snatched some time for Catherine Lowther, his second love, to whom he was now engaged. What had happened between him and his first love, Miss Lawson, will probably never be known. We know that his parents were opposed to his marrying her. Perhaps, too, she might not have been as much in love as he was. But for whatever reason, they parted. Then he fell in love with beautiful Catherine Lowther, a sister to the Earl of Lonsdale, and afterwards Duchess of Bolton. Meanwhile, Pitt was planning for his empire year of 1759, the year of Ferdinand at Minden, Wolfe at Quebec, and Hawke in Quiberon Bay. Before Pitt had taken the war in hand, nearly everything had gone against the British. Though Clive had become the British hero of India in 1757, and Wolfe of Louisbourg in 1758, there had hitherto been more defeats than victories. Menorca had been lost in 1756. In America, Brabock's army had been destroyed in 1755, and Montcalm had won victories at Oswego in 1756, at Fort William Henry in 1757, and at Ticonderoga in 1758. More than this, in 1759 the French were preparing fleets and armies to invade England, Ireland, and Scotland and the British people were thinking rather of their own defence at home than of attacking the French abroad. Pitt, however, rightly thought that vigorous attacks from the sea were the best means of defence at home. From London he looked out over the whole world, at France and her allies in the centre, at French India on his far left, and at French Canada on his far right, with the sea dividing his enemies and uniting his friends if only he could hold its highways with the British navy. To carry out his plans, Pitt sent a small army and a great deal of money to Frederick the Great, to help him in the middle of Europe against the Russians, Austrians, and French. At the same time, he let Anson station fleets round the coast of France, so that no strong French force could get at Britain or Greater Britain, or go to help Greater France without a fight at sea. Then, having cut off Canada from France, and taken her outpost at Louisbourg, he aimed a death-blow at her very heart by sending Saunders, with a quarter of the whole British navy, against Quebec, the stronghold of New France, where the land attack was to be made by a little army of nine thousand men under Wolfe. Even this was not the whole of Pitt's plan for the conquest of Canada. A smaller army was to be sent against the French on the Great Lakes, and a larger one under Amherst along the line of Lake Champlain towards Montreal. Pitt did a very bold thing when he took a young colonel and asked the king to make him a general and allow him to choose his own brigadiers and staff officers. It was a bold thing because, whenever there is a position of honour to be given, the older men do not like being passed over, and all the politicians who think of themselves first and their country afterwards wished to put in their own favourites. Wolfe, of course, had enemies. Dullards often think that men of genius are crazy, and someone had told the king that Wolfe was mad. Mad, is he? said the king, remembering all the recent British defeats on land. Then I hope he'll bite some of my other generals. 
Wolfe was not able to give any of his seniors his own and Lord Howe's kind of divine madness during the war. But he did give a touch of it to many of his juniors, with the result that his Quebec army was better officered than any other British land force of the time. The three brigadiers next in command to Wolfe, Monckton, Townsend, and Murray, were not chosen simply because they were all sons of peers, but because, like Howe and Boscoen, they were first-rate officers as well. Barr and Carleton were the two chief men on the staff. Each became celebrated in later days, Barr in Parliament and Carleton as both the saviour of Canada from the American attack in 1775 and the British Governor-General. Williamson, the best gunnery expert in the whole army, commanded the artillery. The only troublesome officer was Townsend, who thought himself, and whose family and political friends thought him, at least as good a general as Wolfe, if not a better one. But even Townsend did his duty well. The army at Halifax was supposed to be twelve thousand, but its real strength was only nine thousand. The difference was mostly due to the ravages of scurvy and camp fever, both of which, in their turn, were due to the bad food supplied by rascally contractors. The action of the officers alone saved the situation from becoming desperate. Indeed, if it had not been for what the officers did for their men in the way of buying better food, at great cost, out of their own not-well-filled pockets, there might have been no army at all to greet Wolfe on his arrival in America. The fleet was the greatest that had ever sailed across the seas. It included one quarter of the whole Royal Navy. There were forty-nine men of war, manned by fourteen thousand sailors and marines. There were also more than two hundred vessels, transports, store ships, provision ships, etc., manned by about seven thousand merchant seamen. Thus there were at least twice as many sailors as soldiers at the taking of Quebec. Saunders was a most capable admiral and had been flag-lieutenant during Anson's famous voyage round the world, then Hawke's best fighting-captain during the war in which Wolfe was learning his work at Duddingen, and Lafelt, and then Hawke's second-in-command of the cargo of Courage, sent out after Bing's disgrace at Minorca. After Quebec, he crowned his fine career by being one of the best first lords of the Admiralty that ever ruled the Navy. Jurel, his next in command, was slower than Amherst. And Amherst made a shortcut in his life, even to certain success. Holmes, the third admiral, was thoroughly efficient. Hood, a still better admiral than any of those at Quebec, afterward served under Holmes and Nelson under Hood, which links Trafalgar with Quebec. But a still closer link with mighty Nelson was Jervis, who took charge of Wolfe's personal belongings at Quebec, the night before the battle, and many years later became Nelson's commander-in-chief. Another Quebec captain, who afterward became a great admiral, was Hughes, famous for his fights in India. But the man whose subsequent fame in the world at large eclipsed that of any other in this fleet was Captain Cook, who made the first good charts of Canadian waters some years before he became a great explorer in the far Pacific. There was a busy scene at Portsmouth on February 17th, when Saunders and Wolfe sailed in the flagship HMS Neptune of 90 guns and a crew of 750 men, 
she was one of the well-known old three-deckers, those wooden walls of England that kept the empire safe while it was growing up. The guard of red-coated marines presented arms, and the hundreds of blue jackets were all in their places as the two commanders stepped on board. The naval officers on the quarter-deck were very spick and span in their black three-cornered hats, white wigs, long, bright blue, gold-laced coats, white waistcoats and breeches, and stockings and gold-buckled shoes. The idea of having naval uniforms of blue and white and gold, the same colors that are worn today, came from the king's seeing the pretty Duchess of Bedford in a blue and white riding habit, which so charmed him that he swore he would make the officers wear the same colors for the uniforms just then being newly tried. This was when the Duke of Bedford was first lord of the admiralty some years before Pitt's great expedition against Quebec. The sailors were also in blue and white, but they were not so spick and span as the officers. They were a very rough and ready-looking lot. They wore small, soft, three-cornered black hats, bright blue jackets, open enough to show their coarse white shirts and coarse white duck trousers. They had shoes without stockings on shore and only bare feet on board. They carried cutlasses and pistols and wore their hair in pigtails, they would be a surprising sight to modern eyes, but not so much so as the women. Ships and regiments in those days always had a certain number of women for washing and mending the clothes. There was one woman to about every twenty men. They drew pay and were under regular orders, just like the soldiers and sailors. Sometimes they gave a willing hand in action, helping the powder monkeys, boys who had to pass the powder from the barrels to the gunners, or even taking part in a siege, as at Louisbourg. The voyage to Halifax was long, rough, and cold, and Wolfe was seasick as ever. Strangely enough, these ships, coming out to the conquest of Canada under St. George's Cross, made land on St. George's Day near the place where Cabot had raised St. George's Cross over Canadian soil, before Columbus had set foot on the mainland of America. But though April 23rd, might be a day of good omen. It was a very bleak one that year, off Cape Breton, where ice was packed for miles and miles along the coast. On the 30th, the fleet entered Halifax. Slow old Jurel was hurried off on May 5th with eight men of war and 700 soldiers under Carleton to try to stop any French ships from getting up to Quebec. Carleton was to go ashore at Isle aux Codres an island commanding the channel sixty miles below Quebec, and mark out a passage for the fleet through the Traverse at the lower end of the island of Orleans, thirty miles higher up. On the 13th, Saunders sailed for Louisbourg, where the whole expedition was to meet and get ready. Here Wolfe spent the rest of Map, working every day and all day. His army, with the exception of nine hundred American rangers, consisted of seasoned British regulars, with all the weaklings left behind, and it did his heart good to see them on parade. There was the 15th, whose officers still wore a line of black braid on their uniforms in mourning for his death. The 15th and five other regiments, the 28th, 43rd, 47th, 48th, and 58th, were English but the 35th had been forty years in Ireland, and was Irish to a man. 
the whole seven regiments were dressed very much alike three-cornered stiff black hats with black cockades white wigs long-tailed red coats turned back with blue or white in front where they fastened only at the neck white breeches and long white gaiters coming over the knee a very different corps was the seventy-eighth or fraser's highlanders one of the regiments wolfe first recommended and pitt first raised only fourteen years before the quebec campaign these same highlanders had joined prince charlie the young pretender in the famous forty-five they were mostly roman catholics which accounts for the way they intermarried with the french canadians after the conquest they had been fighting for the stuarts against king george and wolfe as we have seen had himself fought against them at culloden yet here they are now under wolfe serving king george they knew that the stuart cause was lost for ever and all of them chiefs and followers alike loved the noble profession of arms the highlanders then wore bonnets like a high tam o'shanter with one white curly feather on the left side their red coats were faced with yellow and they wore the fraser plaid hung from the shoulders and caught up loopwise on both hips their kilts were very short and not pleated badger sporins showing the head in the middle red and white diced hose and buckled brogues completed their wild but martial dress which was well set off by the dirks and claymores that swung to the stride of the mountaineer each regiment had one company of grenadiers picked out for their size strength and steadiness and one company of light infantry picked out for their quickness and good marksmanship sometimes all the grenadier companies would be put together in a separate battalion the same thing was often done with the light infantry companies which were then led by colonel howe wolfe had also made up a small three-company battalion of picked grenadiers from the five regiments that were being left behind at Louisbourg to guard the maritime provinces this little battalion became famous at quebec as the Louisbourg grenadiers the grenadiers all wore red and white like the rest except that their coats were buttoned up the whole way and instead of the three-cornered hats they wore high ones like a bishop's mitre the artillery wore blue-gray coats turned back with red yellow braid and half-moon shaped black hats with the points down towards their shoulders the only remaining regiment is of much greater interest in connection with a canadian campaign it was the sixtieth foot then called the royal americans afterward the sixtieth rifle or old sixtieth and now the king's royal rifle corps it was the first regiment of regulars ever raised in greater britain and the first to introduce the rifle-green uniform now known all over the empire especially in canada where all rifle regiments still follow the sixtieth lead so far as that is possible many of its officers and men who returned from the conquest of canada to their homes in the british colonies were destined to move on to canada with their families as united empire loyalists this was their first war and they did so well in it that wolfe gave them the rifleman's motto they still bear in token of their smartness and dash salet et oda unfortunately they did not then wear the famous rifle green but the ordinary red unfortunately too the rifleman's green 
has no connection with the green jackets of American backwoodsmen in the middle of the eighteenth century. The backwoodsmen were not dressed in green as a rule, and they never formed any considerable part of the regiment at any time. The first green uniform came in with the new 5th Battalion in 1797, and the old 2nd and 3rd Battalions, which fought under Wolfe, did not adopt it till 1815. It was not even of British origin, but an imitation of a German Hussar uniform, which was itself an imitation of one worn by the Hungarians, who have the senior Hussars of the world. But though Wolfe's Royal Americans did not wear the rifle green, and though their coats and waistcoats were of common red, their uniforms differed from those of all other regiments at Quebec in several particulars. The most remarkable difference was the absence of lace, an absence specifically authorized only for this corps, and then only in view of special service and many bush fights in America. The double-breasted coats were made to button across, except at the top, were the lapels turned back like cuffs and coat-tails. All these turn-backs and the breeches were blue. The very long gaiters, the waist and cross-belts, the neckerchief and hat-piping were white. Wearing this distinctly plain uniform, and led by the buglers and drummers in scarlet and gold, like state trumpeters, the Royal Americans could not, even at a distance, be mistaken for any other regiment. End of chapter 6, part 1